bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Springville Historical Society, located in Springville, New York, just south of Buffalo. Uh, the uh, village was established in 1807, and uh, they're very proud to uh, let you know that they've had men from Springville who have served in the 18 War of 1812, the Civil War, both World Wars, and the Vietnam War, and they continued to serve. And they would love to see folks come to their four-building campus and learn more about their history. And also, the Friends of the Montezuma Heritage Park, which is located in Montezuma, New York, just off of the New York State Thruway. And they offer enriching programs and activities to engage and connect people to nature and to their Erie Canal heritage. And one more quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so simply by logging on to our website, which is michaeltkeen.com. Okay, so now on to today's episode. Bobby Driscoll was handpicked for an acting career by Walt Disney himself. Of all the roles he played, Peter Pan seemed most like his alter ego. He would even go on to win the first Academy Award ever given to a child. But it would be his downfall. In 1968, Bobby Driscoll's dead body was found by two boys exploring the ruins of an abandoned tenement building in New York's Greenwich Village. The cause of his death was later determined to have been brought on by his addiction to heroin. He was just 31 years of age. Because there was no one to claim his body, he was buried in a mass grave on Hart Island. And our very special guest today to help us explore this story is Dave Bosser. 
He worked for Disney Studios for over 30 years. He served as the creative director of special products at Walt Disney Animation Studios. And he has contributed his talents to such films as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Dave Bossert, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, as I was um, anticipating our conversation, because I think I probably told you a couple of weeks ago, you, you probably had like the dream job. I, I would imagine there's a lot of young uh, boys or men who are probably saying to themselves today, boy, how do I get to work for Disney Animation Studios? And uh, so maybe that's a good place for us to begin. Uh, how did you end up with this uh, position there? And uh, tell us a little bit about your career with Walt Disney. Well, Michael, uh, it's really kind of interesting because I never thought of myself going to work at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Um, I grew up on Long Island uh, in New York. And uh, when I graduated high school, I knew I wanted to go into art. And I started attending a state university uh, uh, on Long Island, Farmingdale, uh, State University of New York at Farmingdale. And they had this great advertising art program. And I thought, well, that I'm going to start there and then I'll move on to another art college. And when I'm completing that uh, program, I'll go into advertising in New York City. And um, I wound up taking a TV graphics class. And that was the first time I had ever done any animation, really made any of my artwork move. And right around that time, a friend had passed off an article to me uh, from the New York Times about a school in California, California Institute of the Arts, also known as CalArts, uh, in Valencia, California, uh, that was training artists uh, uh, in the style of uh, the full Disney animation. And they were training new artists uh, for uh, the studio. And I decided to send my portfolio out there and see what happened. And, and that's, by the way, is back in the day prior to the Internet. So I think your listeners might appreciate the fact that I had to take this big black portfolio case and package it up and send it UPS out to the, out to the uh, school uh, for the portfolio review. But I wound up getting accepted, and I got a Walt Disney scholarship to go there. And uh, I packed up my Volkswagen Beetle, and I, I drove cross-country, and I went to CalArts. And while at CalArts, I, I, I had uh, classmates who all were, you know, real, what I would refer to as Disney geeks, you know? I mean, people that were mm -hmm. just, all they wanted to do was work at Disney. And anytime somebody said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to go back to New York and work in advertising. And, uh, and so when I graduated from CalArts, I wound up getting a, a job with Don Bluth Studios in Studio City, California. And I said, thought to myself, well, I'll do this for a little bit, and then I'll go back to New York. And I worked at that studio on some early video games, uh, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. And uh, then they went bankrupt. They ran out of money. And I was ready to go back to New York. And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, I'm over at Disney working on a film and they need some help. Uh, why don't you send your portfolio over? And so I thought, okay, well, you know, I could work on that picture and then go back to New York. So I, 
I sent my portfolio over and I got hired by uh, the production manager at the time. His name was Don Hahn. And uh, he and I are friends to this day. I have lunch with him on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, I started working on the Black Cauldron. And and I thought for sure once I finished the Black Cauldron, I'd, I'd certainly get laid off and I'd head back to New York to do advertising. But they wound up holding on to me. So that's kind of how my career began. So what exactly did you do? I mean, you, you draw the uh, actual yeah. figures? No, I, I actually was hired in uh, on the Black Cauldron at an entry-level position known as an in-betweener. So I filled in drawings <laughs> between the animator's key drawings. And um, I was in the effects department. I did special effects animation. And there were 28 people in that department. I was the 28th person hired. And I thought to myself, well, you know, last guy hired, first guy fired. And, uh, and so I just decided I'm going to work as much as I possibly can. I worked overtime my first week. Um, I worked six days a week, I think for the first five months I was on that picture. And then I started working seven days a week until we got the picture finished. And towards the end of the animation process, they started handing out the pink slips, uh, laying people off. And I was coming in every day patiently waiting to get my pink slip and you're ready um, to go I, back to new york right I, I was ready to go back to new york and i was totally fine i i was working so much i i didn't have a chance to spend any money so i had saved up a bunch of money and and i was you know happy to have worked on the picture and i had a great experience and met some great people and i was fully prepared to be laid off and I kept waiting and waiting, and other people around me were getting pink slips, and people who had been there five and ten years were being laid off. And uh, finally, I went down to Don Hahn's office, and I said, Don, I go, can you give me an idea when you're going to give me my pink slip? Because I'd like to try and sort of plan out what I'm going to do next, you know? And he looked at me sort of surprised, and, and he says, Dave, he goes, we're not, we're not planning on laying you off. You've been working so hard. We want to keep you. <laughs> and I think I did sort of a Tex Avery take, you know, uh, where my eyes bulged out and my jaw hit the floor <laughs> because I just didn't think that they were going to keep me. So it, it kind of was funny. And actually, for the first, I think, four or five pictures that I worked on at the studio, I kept thinking at the end of the picture, well, the, the end of this picture is when I'll go back to New York because they're they're going to lay me off. And and it didn't happen. And I, I spent 32 years. It was a fantastic fantastic uh wild ride you know and i do go back yeah, to new a, york i i do visit new york the three or four times a year because my mother still lives on long island so <laughs> that's an interesting career strategy you know you say well i'm going to get laid off at any moment and and 32 years later there you are um <laughs> when, when you i, I listed a, a few of the uh, project few of the films that you worked on the little mermaid beauty and the beast lion king who framed Roger Rabbit. Do any of those stick out uh, in particular uh, because of your experience and being associated with them? Well, you know, the thing I always tell people is that every single picture I worked on and every project I worked on at the studio, um, you know, always had its own uh, challenges and its own uh, sort of personality, if you will. And, and I always learned something new on each of these projects and so I have great memories. And I often say, like, you know, to 
you know, which one was your favorite? I get that question all the time. And it's like sure. saying, which, which one of your kids is your favorite? You know, and I, I bet, and I right. kind of laugh when I tell this because I was out speaking a few years, well, probably 10 years or so ago. And my oldest daughter, Sydney, was in the audience. And, and when I was asked that question, I responded, well, that's like trying to, determine which one you know who's your favorite child and right. and my my oldest daughter was down in the in the front row waving pointing at herself you know <laughs> so i'm your favorite so but you know quite frankly um i do tell people though the one that kind of bubbles to the surface as far as a lot of great experiences is who framed roger rabbit because i had the opportunity right. to move over to london I uh, worked on that picture in London uh, where most of the animation was done. And I worked with the animation director, uh, Richard Williams, who, who's a living legend, um, one of the greatest animators currently living, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, it was just a really fun picture to work on. Well, now that one, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was one, maybe one of the first that... Uh, blended animation with live action correct now, some people have called it the most complicated movie ever made well I, I i have to tell you that the the picture uh was made they they did the interior photography uh in uh london uh they did the exteriors in los angeles we did most of the animation in london but the toontown sequence was done in los angeles all of the compositing of the animation with the live action was done up in uh, uh, the Bay Area, up in uh, Marin County at Lucasfilm. And so, and you have to remember that picture was done prior to computers doing, you know, today you, you have all these fantastic uh, software programs that allow you to combine uh, various elements uh, together uh, digitally. Um, so if you go and see, uh, Marvel's end game and all the special effects that are in there, you know, that's all digital compositing. Uh, we did mm -hmm. who framed Roger Rabbit on optical printers and it was all film based compositing that was done. And so essentially no computers. And, uh, I saw that picture a couple of years ago for the 25th anniversary and it still holds up. It's still a great picture to watch. Um, and it really did take the combination of live action animation to the nth degree. But it wasn't the first time they had done it. I mean, you have to remember, you go back to 1964 and Disney did Mary Poppins. There's the whole uh, sequence, uh, the Jolly Holiday sequence with uh, Dick Van Dyke dancing with the penguins and all of that. And then if you go back further, you go back to um, uh, the late 1940s and you've got Song of the South. Uh, and I think that's a great segue, by the way, into talking about Bobby Driscoll. But uh, right. Song of the South also used, uh, you know, in 1946, uh, they were using, they, they did digital, uh, not digital, but they did compositing of the animation uh, with Uncle Remus, uh, you know, the zippity-doo-dah sequence. It's just right. absolutely fantastic. Uh, well, since uh, we're talking about segueing uh, into the Bobby Driscoll story, wh when did that he come onto your radar screen, so to speak? Well, I and think, you know, 
You know, for for me, it would have been with Song of the South because I think that when you talk to animators today, uh, they'll look back and and point to the animation that was done in Song of the South as some of the, the, just like from a technical standpoint, some of the best animation that had been done at the Disney Studios. And, you know, that's kind of, you're sort of getting into the tail end of the, the golden age of animation at that point. But, you know, Song of the South was right after uh, World War II had ended. Um, during World War II, the Disney Studios were doing tremendous amount of live-action training films for various uh, uh, branches of the military and, and various government departments, uh, and that really helped keep the studio afloat during those years. And uh, so, you know, you, the war is over, and Walt is now, you know, running his studio again from the standpoint of, He's branching out into live action because he had been doing live action for the past four or four or five years uh, uh, with all these training films. And so you've got uh, these great animators, the nine old men, all working on Song of the South to do those animated sequences. So, uh, again, with Bobby Driscoll, was this just a, a story that was kind of uh, talked about? Uh, in general, or yeah, uh, I think I, I think when you start talking about Song of the South, certainly the cast comes up. I think what's what's really wonderful uh, uh, is uh, there, there's such a variety of stories associated with Song of the South, not just the Bobby Driscoll story, but uh, certainly uh, the Uncle Remus uh, story, where you've got um, you know James Basket. Uh, wins uh, a special Academy Award for his role uh, in that film, and you know, and the fact that he couldn't stay in in the same hotel as Walt down in Atlanta when they did the premiere. Um, you've got a lot of the voice actors who are these great African American actors, uh, and there's mm -hmm. some wonderful stories uh, behind those. Uh, you know, people like Johnny Lee and his wife uh, were helping to fund a community theater in Los Angeles uh, during that period. Um, and those guys were sort of uh, trailblazing, I think, for, for African-American actors. Um, and uh, there's, there's some great stories that, that really should be told. The sad story, of course, is the Bobby Driscoll story because... You know, I, and I can't tell you exactly when I heard it, but I know it was back in the late 80s or early 90s. I heard from uh, a colleague who had been at the company for quite a long time, uh, the story of uh, Bobby Driscoll's mother contacting Roy O. Disney to see if the studio could help them with uh, trying to locate him. Um, and it was after he had passed away, obviously, but his mother didn't know that at that point, I don't believe. Right. Did, did you, uh, ever meet or did you know Roy or, or Walt was before your time? Did he already yeah. pass away? So, yeah. Walt, Walt passed away in 66 and then his brother Roy O passed away, mm -hmm. I believe in 71 after Walt Disney World opened. Um, I actually, uh, knew Roy O's son. Uh, Roy E. Disney, and I knew him actually quite well uh, for probably close to 20 years. In fact, after he passed away, the the first book I ever wrote was uh, Remembering Roy E. Disney. 
um, stories and pictures, you know, it's it, it just, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it was a fluke that a friend of mine, it happened to be Don Hahn, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he and I were talking one day and we were swapping stories about Roy because he and I, because Don and I were going to do a presentation on Fantasia, Fantasia 2000 and Destino at the Boston Museum of Fine Art. And so, you know, I was telling Don a couple of stories that he hadn't known before. And Don looked at me and he, and we were in Boston sitting in a lounge at the hotel. And he said, you know, you ought to put some of those in a book. Those are great stories. And that's really what started me down this path of writing books. And I wrote Remembering Roy E. Disney, Memories and Photos of a Storied Life. And that was my first book. And then from there, it just kind of took off my writing career. And uh, now I'm writing full time. And um, I seem to be putting out almost a book a year now. What's your latest? But, um, the one that's out right now is um, it released in November of last year, November 2018. It's called Chem Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios. And it just mm-hmm. documents the furniture that this architect, Chem Weber, designed for the animation process at Disney. And when I left Disney in 2016, the studio gave me my 1939 Chem Weber animation desk that I had been using for decades. And <laughs> just so you know, we're doing this interview. I'm sitting at my Chem Weber uh, desk uh, in Beautiful. my office here, and this is where I write. So, this you know, where it all I, takes place. Yeah. So having. Having had the opportunity to know and become friends with Roy E. Disney, uh, who was the nephew of Walt, you know, I got a lot of stories firsthand uh, from Roy, who grew up basically on the studio lot from, you know, the time. I mean, he, he was spending time as a child running around the Hyperion studio, which predates the current Burbank studio. So it was it was really... You know, to me, just a, a, a wonderful experience. He was a wonderful individual, and the family was very, co- you know, very cooperative and and agreed to let me write this book, remembering Roy E. Disney, because he was a wonderful guy. And I just wanted people who read that book to walk away with a sense of who he was as a human being, because he really was right. a down-to-earth guy even though he had the name Disney and even though at the time he was worth, you know, over a billion dollars. So. Amazing. The, um, you know, one of the uh, great trivia questions um, is, and there's a connection. Give me a minute is uh, Steve jobs, the uh, founder of Apple, of course. And the Uh trivia question is what, what stock did he own the most shares of when he passed away? And the answer, of course, is Disney, Correct. because he was also associated with the uh, Pixar uh, studios, which he later sold to Disney. And did you ever work on any Pixar uh, films or uh, aware no, of what no. they were doing over there? Yeah, I was aware of what they were doing. I have a lot of friends that worked up at Pixar over the years, and uh, actually, when we were working on Fantasia 2000, uh 
we flew up to um, uh, Northern California to visit uh, Pixar because we we were essentially talking to them about having them animate a, a sequence for Fantasia 2000. But from a production standpoint, it never worked out. Uh, but we did have those conversations. And I have a terrific story because back in 2000, early 2004, um, I had finished work in 2003 on a short called Destino, which uh, Salvador Dali and Walt Disney had started in 1947 and never completed. And Roy wanted to have the short completed. Um, and so in 2002, 2003, uh, team got put together. I was on that and, um, they completed, we completed the, the project and it got nominated for an Academy Award. And I'll never forget, we, uh, we didn't win, unfortunately, but, um, we came out of the, the Academy theater into the lobby and I was standing with Roy Disney and his wife at the time, Patty, and a few other colleagues um, uh, that were associated with Destino and myself and my wife, Nancy. And we were trying to decide what we were going to do, uh, whether, whether some people were going to go to the governor's ball or whether we were all going to go off together someplace. And up walks Steve Jobs. And he, he sort of... S- stepped up not quite to the group he kind of waited for a moment to step in to say hi uh and he wanted to say hi to roy and 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 it was uh it was really kind of an interesting uh moment and uh, and then afterwards we we wound up uh roy asked his wife patty at the time you know what do you want to do and and she said i'd like to just get some in and out burgers and so we all piled into the limousine and we went to an In-N-Out Burger on Coanga Boulevard, picked up a box of burgers and fries, and we went back to Roy's house in Toluca Lake. And uh, he popped a big magnum of red wine and we drank this wonderful red wine and ate hamburgers and chatted until about one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it was, you know, again, a lot of these experiences, you kind of pinch yourself and go, is this really, am I really here? Is this really happening? <laughs> oh, what a, what a, what a wonderful story. Yeah. Steve Jobs, the Disney family, and you went out and had hamburgers. That's beautiful. <laughs> In the minute or so uh, that we have left, by the way, we're going to close out your uh, segment with a a very special treat, I think. It's going to be the audio from when Bobby Driscoll received his Academy Award. Um, But before we do, again, in about a minute or so we have left, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah. Tell us um, enough. Sure. Absolutely. So on August 27th, there's a special edition of my Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, The Search for the Lost Disney Cartoons, that's releasing. And that's a special edition that I've updated the text on. It includes six lithographs, and it has a foreword by Robert Iger, Bob Iger, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And then in December, I have a book called 3D Disneyland, like you've never seen it before. And that's going to showcase a collection, a rare collection of stereo photographs of Disneyland from 1955 to 1980. And then next June, 
I have uh, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion coming out from Disney Editions. And that book is kind of a making of The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's an in-depth look behind how that movie got made. And I had actually worked on it and also talked with so many of the artists, many of my colleagues, including uh, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman and Henry Selleck, who directed the film, um, and give a whole behind the scenes of how that movie got made. So those are the, the big swath of projects I've got going on. And I've got a few more after that that I can't talk about at the moment. <laughs> well, we can uh, hardly wait to hear what they are. And, uh, you know, Dave, I just really uh, have enjoyed our conversation listening to you. Uh, what a story. Uh, what, 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 a, what a history. And uh, so as we say goodbye to you, we're going to now listen to the very rare audio of Bobby Driscoll, little Bobby Driscoll, receiving his Academy Award. And again, Dave, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. I've never think I've been so thrilled in my life. <laughs> but I want to thank everybody that had to do with me getting this award. I want to thank God for giving me such a wonderful mother and father. Thank you. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Talking Heart Island.